0: Uh, we, we are in a, a sermon series, um, the title of which is When We Were Kings, and we're looking at a particular time in the history of Israel, uh, the period of the kings around and after the, the death of, of King David primarily. And the reason we're doing this is to, is to get a look at two approaches to power. Uh, one of the approaches to power, to acquiring power, keeping power, using power, is, 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 is empire power, which is nothing to do with the ways of God. And the alternate way is, is what we're going to call or what we've been calling kingdom power, uh, which, is, which is God's way uh, of acquiring, um, keeping, using power. And the reason we're doing this is to help us identify um, uh, historically ways um, of dealing with power that are helpful for us uh, in the modern era. And the context um, we've been l- using is 1 Kings, um, but we're going to read today also, adjacent to 1 Kings, some passages from the book of First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. Uh, and today is an interactive approach. What that means is that, uh, who has actually a, a physical Bible? Who carries one of these with them? Uh, okay, there's one, two, show of hands, one at the back. Um, so you're going to be flipping through that a little bit, and there's one there. Well done. Um, and if you don't have an actual Bible, then your phones. And in addition to looking up passages of the Bible, at one point, I'm going to ask you to Google something. So, so go ahead and get your browsers primed. Um, it's just a short phrase for something that we try to get into a graphic, but it, when you see what it is, you'll understand why it was difficult to, to get it on screen. Um, now, so the context is King David has died, um, Solomon is now king, and God has answered Solomon's prayer for wisdom to, to lead the people. And Solomon um, has has benefited from preparations uh, that his father David made before him. David uh, made uh, preparations that meant that he got silver together, and gold together, and bronze together, and wood, and iron, and other things, precious stones, and marble. uh, And he prepared zealously um, for the building of the temple that he wanted to build, but God said, in fact, would be built by his son. And Solomon is also aided by, by a king of a surrounding nation who sends to him the timber Um, and the stones that he needs. So Solomon has all the elements he needs to build the temple, and he begins to build the temple. And he builds according to plans that his father gave him. And if you were to look, you don't need to look at it now, but you could maybe make a note. 1 Chronicles 28, uh, verses 11 to 12, tells us that, that David was the one who had the plans for the building of the temple, and that it is, in fact, the Spirit of God who gives the plans to David. And so we're, we're reading now from 1 Kings. So if you may be turning your Bibles and your phones, and your physical Bibles, to 1 Kings uh, chapter 6. Uh, reading from verse 1. And I'm just going to read a couple verses from the beginning, a few verses from the middle, and one verse at the end. First Kings uh, chapter 6, verse 1. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, helpful that they added that because otherwise we wouldn't have any clue what it is, Um, (laughs) Um, that he began to build the house of the Lord. Now the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, its width 20, and its height 30 cubits. And and my understanding is that a cubit is somewhere between 19 and 22.7 inches. And so if we were to round that up to 2 feet, that tells us that the temple is 120 feet long, It's 40 feet wide, and it's 60 feet high. Uh, This is the size of the construction that Solomon is building. And so turn over to, or look down to verse 11, and it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this temple which you were building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments, and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell in among the children of Israel, and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the temple and finished it, and then head down to verse 38, where it says, in the 11th year and the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its detail and according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. Um, and uh, okay, so jump forward to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. So you'll see that First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles are are telling different aspects of the same narrative. And you get some pieces from one, you get other pieces from the other. So, wow, now we turn to Second Chronicles 5. And you'll see there, uh, show of hands, we mainly there. Everybody there? Good. Everybody's quick this morning. So, all the work, so we were getting ready for the outside service. That's why I was trying it this way, because we're not going to have slides outside. So, so I was just trying a a different approach so that everybody outside in the park, all 800 people that are going to show up. Uh, are going to be on their Bibles and and on their phones. So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and all the furnishings, and he puts them in the treasuries of the house of God. Verse 4 tells us that the elders of Israel come and the Levites bring the ark in. Verse 6 tells us that the congregation assembles before the ark, and they begin sacrificing sheep and oxen, so many that you can't count or number because of the multitude the priests then have brought the ark into the into the temple and if you flip down to verse 13 it said it came to pass when all the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord and when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord saying he is good for his mercy endures forever that the house the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And you can see that that continues after Solomon prays at the top of um, chapter 7. Um, Solomon finishes praying. Fire, in fact, then comes down from heaven, consumes the burnt offering, and the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And so, so what's significant about this is that Solomon builds the temple according to the plans that the Spirit of God gives his father, which, which should remind you of how Moses builds the tabernacle in the wilderness according to plans that God gives him on the mountain. And in fact, the proof that Moses had built according to the right plans is that the presence of God inhabits the structure, of the tabernacle, and the wilderness. And so if, if Solomon had built this temple according to the plans, and they'd done everything, and they'd killed these thousands, billions, millions, how many sheep and, and oxen there were, and, and they're sitting there, and they've got the greatest band, and the band strikes up, and it plays, and nothing happens, then what? then maybe they would have been concerned that somewhere along the line they'd done something wrong. But that isn't what happens. Instead, the, the glory of God fills the tabernacle. And I don't want you to over-underestimate the significance of this. This is the presence of God. The very presence of the living God with his people, the people who he would called out of Mesopotamia when he calls Abraham and tells him, to go to a land that he will show him. And he leads Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the people of Israel through Egypt, delivers them from Egypt, takes them through the wilderness, delivers them delivers, delivers them into the promised land and, and, and dispossesses the, the, all their enemies from the land and gives them the land, sustains them in the land. This is the same God who, who desires to dwell with his people, which is a pattern that we see all the way back through uh, of the tabernacle all the way back into the Garden of Eden, that God wants to dwell with his people. And, and, and he goes out of his way to give them the plans for a precise structure that they build. Um, and, so, and so, but this, the important thing is this, that, that God is with them because of their obedience. We read in, in, in chapter 6 of First Kings, um, verse 11, that, that God says, if you, if you do what I say, I'll continue to dwell with you. And if you don't do what I say, he says in other places that I won't. And so God's with them because they've followed him. God isn't with them because they've acted like the people in the surrounding nations, the people who are in the empire building um, countries around them. Um, But our focus this morning isn't going to be about, you think that we're going to talk about building things, right? Um, Wouldn't that be fun? We're not going to talk about building things Anna. No, we're not. What we're going to talk about is what happens next, because the what happens next is important, because where is the temple today? Where is the temple that Solomon built today, more specifically? Anybody know where it is? What happened to it? Okay, let's go find out what happened to the temple that Solomon built. Because what happens is that the ways of the surrounding empires are seductive. And they're trying to walk in the ways of the Lord, but these these enticing, contaminating, tainting ways of the kingdoms that surround them begin to seep in. And God has told them not to walk in their ways. And that his way, kingdom power is his way. It's not about empire power, and it's not about military might. It's not about idolatry, or immorality, or injustice, or scheming, or manipulation, or sin of every kind. And instead of of following God's ways, the people of Israel are seduced by those things, deceived into believing those things are okay, and they begin to walk in those ways. And guess what? Ezekiel, the prophet in Ezekiel chapter 8 through to verse 11, sees a vision of the glory leaving The temple. So the glory of God that fills the temple and the cloud that fills the temple so that the people cannot continue at some point leaves. And that the enemies of Israel then invade and the enemies of Israel destroy the temple. So that's why there is no temple anymore is because the enemies of Israel destroyed it and they kill some of the Israelites and they carry the rest of the Israelites off into exile. And the reason this happens is is because they started walking in a way that wasn't the way that the Lord had told them to walk in. And, and the crazy thing is that God had warned them. If you, if you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 19 to 22, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, um, verses 19 to 22, God says this, but if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments which I've set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them, that's his people, from my land which I've given them, And this house, which I have sanctified for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. As for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by will be astonished and saying, What has God done? Why has God done this? They will answer, because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, embraced other gods, worshipped them, served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity on them. So the presence of the temple, the existence of the temple, the, the continuation of the glory and presence of God with them was evidence that they were walking in his ways. And when, and when the temple's destroyed and the glory departs and the people are carried off into exile, it's a, it's, a, it's a clear word to everyone that says, what on earth happened to Israel? They stopped walking after him. They stopped walking after him. They began to turn aside and walk in the ways of the kingdoms that surrounded them, which God had said not to do. And you would ask yourself, why would you do that? How does that even make sense? Because you know that it's God's, God's presence is with you because of, of, of your obedience to him. But somehow, the ways of the world have seduced them. And I want to ask you how it works out for those who follow the ways of the world. When you think about the empires that have been, the Egyptian empire, the Persian empire, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the, the Romans. And, and this is the point that I want you to Google something on your phone. So, so open your browser um, if you have a phone, or, or look at your parents' phone if you don't yet have a phone. Um, and I just want you to type in these, this, this phrase, histomap, H-I-S-T-O-M-A-P, H-I-S-T-O-M-A-P. And when you see this map, this crazy map, just raise your hand so I know that you've got it. HistoMap, HistoMap, everybody got HistoMap? Click on that, scroll down, and just take a look at that. Everybody got that? Most people have got that. Now, this was a graphic that we were going to try and put up, but we couldn't get it on one page, uh, couldn't get it on a few pages. What it is, is it's something that was created in, in 1931 by a man called John Sparks. So this is before World War II, this is before the Cold War, before the modern era. It's a, it's a map of, of the ebb and flow of empires all the way back um, to 2000 BC. So from 2000 BC through to 1931, look at the ebb and flow of empires. If you scroll down that, see if you can see when the Egyptians were dominant, because the, the size of the Egyptians, is it in pink? I can't remember what color it is. It's huge. And then, and then it funnels down to something little, and then, and then someone else takes over. It might be the Syrians, and then somewhere else you'll see the Babylonians, and somewhere else you'll see the the, the, the Persians, and somewhere else you'll see the Greeks, and somewhere else you'll see the Roman Empire. Somewhere a little lower, you'll see the Holy Roman Empire. If you scroll down that, you see if you can find where Egypt goes to. <laughs> and this huge dominant country that once was, where is it now? It's just a little small country that's not dominating the world. And where is the Roman Empire these days? Where is it? Where's the Assyrian Empire? Where's the Babylonian Empire? Where's the Mongolian Empire? Where are all these nations that grew because they were following worldly, worldly ways. Empire ways, not godly ways. The end of of empires is that at some point, they all come to nothing. Now, I can't prove to you why that happens, but sometimes it's because there is infighting within the empire. The people within the same empire, instead of looking outwards and fighting people around them, are turning inwards on themselves. And the scripture says in Matthew 12, verse 25, that the kingdom, divided against itself, cannot what? Cannot stand. So Jesus has made a pronouncement that when within a kingdom, within the same land, within the same country, there are people turning on one each other, the word of the Lord is that that kingdom cannot stand. And if you go back and you trace the, the history of some of those empires that you've seen through through that 4,000 years of history, and there's another 100 or so years to add on to that that I'm sure you can work out from your own historical understanding, you'll find that many times it's because someone turned on someone else and someone turned on someone else, and then that person added a faction to them, and they added a faction to them, and the factions were fighting, and then a third, fourth, fifth, sixth faction, everyone's fighting everybody, and then somewhere in that, their enemies took them over because they were fighting themselves too much, right? And another reason it might happen is maybe, maybe in Acts 17, verse, verse 26... Acts 17, verse 26, flip all the way over to the New Testament. You probably get there quicker on phones than, 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 than with a, a, a physical Bible. Acts 17, 26 says, He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So maybe God just says, enough. That's enough. Enough of your sinful ways. Enough of your sinful empire ways of the dominating and the a, and a perpetuating injustice and, 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 and all sorts of other terrible things, just enough. And we know for certain that God, the Scripture says, resists the proud. So I wonder whether it is that when a nation becomes so proud of what it is and what it has and how good it is and what it's acquired for itself and how strong it is and how brilliant and perfect and just it is, that you find yourself setting yourself against God who says, oh, hold on a second, worship me. And there's more in the Book of Psalms. In Psalm Psalm two, um, um, it says, "Psalm two, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? And the kings of themselves set themselves, of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed." In other words, any nation that at any point rises up and says that I'm better than God. I'm bigger than God. I don't need God. Instead of where it says in verse 10, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in your way when his wrath is kindled but for a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So I can't prove to you why some nations were that big on the map and then dwindled down to nothingness, whether it was infighting or pride. Or something, or God just said, your boundaries are set, and that's enough, and there's only one kingdom that lasts forever, and it's my kingdom. And so the silly thing is that you ask this, it's kind of like a rhetorical question, then why would Israel turn aside from godly ways to empire ways, when through history, we see that empire ways don't last? They just don't last doesn't matter how dominant a country is at any point in history. At some point, at some point, the future will look back and see that the demise of that nation happened because of something, whether it was the proudness of the nation or the infighting within the nation. This is what's significant. Israel, however, chooses to follow empire ways. And so I think... We'll get a, we've got to go after an answer here this morning. It's no point just speculating as to what goes on. I want you to journey with me, because I'm going to try and find an answer to why Israel goes after these, these empire ways and instead, instead of following the ways of the kingdom. Um, and I'm going to say something to you. I think, I think that the starting point is deception. When the devil, when the, when the serpent in the Garden of Eden comes to Eve, He says to Eve, did God really say that? When you eat of this tree, you will die. Did he really say that? Did he mean it? He didn't really mean that. Did he even say it? You see, the beginning of it is some kind of deception. It's not about not knowing the word of the Lord. It's not about knowing the word of the Lord and maybe forgetting it which does happen over generations, but I believe what creeps in is a deception. A deception that says that God does not mean what he says. That God said something, but he didn't mean it. That when God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat of that tree, of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die, he didn't mean it. He was joking. It was just a uh, thing. Just something that was just thrown out, and it's just irrelevant that you could eat of it, and you'll be fine. That's not who God is. And sometimes what happens is that we think that because God hasn't done something, God hasn't acted like like the parent who runs after the child who does the bad thing and whaps them or pulls the thing away instantly because there's not an instant sense of God stepping in, that maybe God is sleeping, that maybe God didn't mean what he said, and so then I can carry on doing this thing because God really didn't mean it because I've been doing it for now a week or a year or a month or decades or centuries if it's the case of a nation, and God hasn't acted yet, so it's fine to carry on in this way. But the truth of the Lord still is the same. that The nation that rages and becomes prideful against God is going to bring itself down. And then every nation, every kingdom, divided against itself, cannot stand. And so I think the deception that creeps in is this, is that even though they heard that in, in they remember that God in First in, in Kings 6, verses 11 to 14 says, if you continue in my ways, then I'll stay with you, Somehow they begin to think over the years from one king to another king that God didn't mean this, that I can start acting like the other nations and it will be fine because we have the temple. And you see, this is the problem with building things sometimes is because you have the structure. And when you have the structure, you're convinced that because historically, once point in time, at some point in history, for one season, God spoke to you, God told you something, God gave you something, and you have that, that that's everything. But Jeremiah was the one that said to them about the temple. Don't boast in having the temple because that doesn't mean anything because the temple is gone. And if you don't walk in the ways of the Lord, that the presence of the temple isn't anything. So I want you to think through this. How do we do this these days? We can build lives. We can build lifestyles. We can build marriages and families and businesses and churches and denominations and systems of government and and all sorts of other structures and countries based perhaps on words that God spoke to us historically and then get all caught up in the fact that God told us something back then and God gave us that thing back then and we've been and we walked according to it back then and now we've got the thing that God gave us back then and so we can do what we want. And so I have a marriage that God began and God. Led me, led me into by faith, and the man and the woman came together by faith and each believed that they were the right person for God in, in, in the eyes of the law for one another. But then they just act in any way and are convinced that, well, God started it. And there's no work going forward. There's no persisting in his ways going forward. And don't be surprised then when the marriage disintegrates. There are hundreds, thousands of denominations. Where are they now? Many of which began on the basis of the word of God and sometimes revelation and prophetic words and power and glory. I remember we came from England and there are so many Church of England churches that are huge edifices. They have, they have great houses for the ministers to live in as well, by the way. Um, um, but like these huge structures that that, that, that that are that are that are even the ones that the, the royal family has weddings in. Have anybody ever been to Westminster Abbey and St. Paul's Cathedral? There's no power of God in those places. There's no power of God in those places. Even if the Church of England was started according to the Word of God and wasn't anything to do with King Henry and his nonsense and the wives that he wanted to marry and all that kind of stuff. Think of the denominations that began well and the churches that began well. And then there enters in a sense of complacency. That we got it. It's working. We're doing well. God was with us. God was the one that told us to start it, and so we can do anything, and then the seduction of the world begins to creep in, and the way that we begin to maintain the power is the way that the world maintains its power, through manipulation and injustice and, 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 and fighting, and, and it's got to be the same thing in a country. If God was the one that authored the Constitution of the United States of America and the foundations of this country, is that enough? Is it enough to rest in what he gave us back then? And to spend more time being fixated on the foundations of the government rather than the God who founded the government. To be more fixated on the God who said build the church, sorry, on the the church that you built rather than the God who said to build it. To be more fixed with the, the husband or wife that God said to marry rather than the God who said to do it. To build a business that could be a multinational billion dollar business. That God may have said, breathed life into and giving you the initial thoughts and the ideas and the inspiration to do it, and to think that God gave me to this, this, it's great, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it, I can now live and do and be anything I want, rather than re- remaining f- focused on the God in the present tense, who gave you the instructions in the first place. And the scripture says in the book of Galatians, do not be deceived. You see, that's why I picked up on the sense of deception. Do not be deceived. Galatians 5, verse 7 to 8. God is not mocked. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man or a woman sows, that's what you reap. If you sow to your flesh, we will of our flesh reap corruption. But if we sow to the Spirit, we will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. That's telling us that we can't dwell in the past. We can't dwell in the edifice. We can't dwell in the structure. We can't dwell in the thing that God told us to do back then. We've got to keep sowing. We've got to keep doing things that are diligent towards God, pressing forward, believing that God is calling us to this daily, moment by moment. The Scripture says when Jesus prays and he teaches his disciples to pray, he says, give us which day? Give us 25 years ago the bread that we need for the rest of our lives. No, he says, give us each day, daily, day by day, our daily bread. That was modeled to the Israelites in the desert because when God began to provide for them in the wilderness, he gave them manna every morning. And it was weird because if they try to store it up, other than on the Saturday for the Sabbath or for the Sabbath, that this stuff would decay. God was saying, come back to me every day and live with me in the present rather than dwelling in the past. Man shall not live by bread alone, by, by every word that proceeds. It's the present tense proceeds. We've got to get the bread that comes from God now or today rather than being fixated with the structure. And so what this means is that, I, you know, it means it doesn't matter how the Grace Church started and whatever may be in the foundations or how this place started or whatever may be in the foundations, whatever ministries we build. Or whatever may cause the foundations of that, or how great they may seem today, we've got to walk with God in the present tense, every day, always, So less talk. It's not that we abandon the roots, but let's not be like Israel who boasts in, we have the temple, we have the temple, we have the constitution, we have the denomination, we have the church, where is it now? Where is it now? How do we know when we're off course then? Think about your own lives. Think about times when, when you sense God just prodding you. Um, the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road has an experience with God. Remember, this is Lord Jesus Christ who he has been persecuting by tracking down Christians all over the place. And when Jesus shows up on the Damascus Road, he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me? So Saul realizes for the first time that it's Christ in his people that, that, is, that, is, that is vitally involved in, in, in this venture that he's on. And it says, Jesus says something else to him. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Do you know what a goad is? Anybody know what a goad is? It's a sharp proddy thing, exactly. A goad is a sharp pointed stick for driving cattle. And so what Jesus seems to be saying to Paul is, it's hard for you to resist my In the ribs, you're doing something, poke, oh shouldn't have done that. Pope, shouldn't have done that. Should have done that. (laughs) That somehow, maybe in Paul's Saul's persecution of the church, at some point, he finds God prodding him in a way, in a sense, but he keeps going and 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 the prodding's getting more severe. He's like, This can't be God, I'm doing God's work, I'm doing the right thing, and eventually, what does God do? He stops him dead on the Damascus road and throws him off his horse and blinds him. He gets his attention anyway. Now, let's hope it's never that severe. But the point is that God went out of his way to prod and to, and to urge Paul. And what it is, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a prodding to, to judgment. It's a calling towards mercy. The God is saying to Paul, come on. I love you. I died for you. There's a kingdom work for you to do that I intend just for you to do that no one else could do, and it matters so much to me that I'm going to pull you short up on this road and stop you, because you haven't been listening to me. And sometimes we know we're off track, and sometimes we know when the deception has worked its way, and because, because God's presence just isn't as close as it was. Maybe we're just not hearing from Him as clearly as we were previously, or, or we feel like we're just pushing uphill, and it's it's hard, and it's, it's not that this is something i meant to push through because this is, this is proper spiritual resistance, and I'm walking with the law, but, but I've got to press through with it. This is somehow that God himself is actively resisting and pushing back, and, and maybe there's fruitlessness. But clearly, we're just in the wrong place, and we know it. And God urges and beckons and convicts And calls us to mercy. And I'm sure this was the way it was for Israel. All the way through the history of Israel. That even though they begin to do things that God says not to do. They marry people in the surrounding nations. they, They worship in the wrong places. They begin to worship false gods. They do all of the wrong things. They perpetrate injustice. That all the way along, God's just prodding them and saying, come back to me. Come back to me. This isn't the way to walk in. There's a way to walk in. You know what it is. Turn and walk that way. But eventually, there comes a point when God says, enough for Israel, and the temple is destroyed, and the glory departs. And that's horrible when you look at a nation historically, and that's what's happened to it, because they just didn't listen to the prodding of God at some point, and God was saying, stop. Stop. Stop the injustice. Stop the empire ways. Stop doing it the way the world does it. Worship me. Serve me. Stop your pride. Stop the infighting. Turn back to me. Turn back to me. I'm prodding you. I'm prodding you. I'm goading you. I'm goading you. I'm goading you. And in our hearts, it's a call to God's mercy, to God, a God who says, turn my ways. Stop boasting. In what you have. Stop boasting in how rich you are. Stop boasting in your historical success. Today, walk in my ways. Today, serve me. Today, forsake sin. Love me. Practice justice. Practice mercy. Today. You ever get confused about what it means to walk in the kingdom ways? Read Read the Beatitudes. Read the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. Read the Sermon on the Plain, which is a little shorter. We, we proved it the other day. That you can read the whole Sermon on the Mount in 10 minutes. You can read the, the Luke equivalent um, in like four or five. Blessed are the, blessed are the these, blessed are these people, blessed are those people, blessed is this. In fact, you know, I got, I got to turn to it because, because um, blessed are you, poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, it says in Luke. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you and cast you out. And your name is evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap. Woe to you who are rich, for you've had your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh, for you shall mourn. Woe to you when all men speak evil of you. And you have more Instagram followers than anyone else. You're the most popular person on Twitter. For so they did to the false prophets. Popularity in the kingdom is down here. Riches in the kingdom is down here. Poverty, the poorness of spirit, lack because of the heart that it causes us to have towards God is flipped up here. Being hated for God's sake is up here. These are kingdom ways. These are not worldly ways. So in the middle of where we are at the moment, I don't know how many days we are from an election, we've got to get more kingdom minded. We've got to get more kingdom-minded. It isn't just something that's got to happen between now and November 3rd. It's a long-lasting, life-lasting commitment to ways of the kingdom. And as it was for Israel, the cure is the same. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 11 to 15, Solomon finishes the house of the Lord and his own house, accomplishes all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord, And the Lord appears to Solomon by night and says to him, I've heard your prayer. So Solomon's built the house, and he's he's prayed to God. And he's basically said to God that, 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 that when we go off track, if we pray to you in this place, please hear us. If we go off track, when we go off track, if we turn to you in this place, please hear us. God says, I've heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heaven, and there is no rain, which is goading, that's resistance, that's God resisting. Or command the locusts to devour the land, that's God resisting them. Or send pestilence among my people, that's God resisting a nation or a whole world. If my people, who were called by my name, will humble themselves... And pray. Seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Look at this the wondrous mercy of God. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. And the this place that he's speaking of then is the temple. But Jesus in the New Testament says to those gathered, One greater than the temple is here. One greater than the temple is here. So it's not about praying in humility towards a temple that doesn't exist because it's been destroyed and the glory's left. It's about turning our hearts to the one greater than the temple, whose name is Jesus. Luke 18:9 to 14, two men go up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. One stands and prays, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men. Nope, I ain't. I'm not like the extortioners, I'm not like the unjust, the adulterers, I'm not even like this tax collector, I mean, look at him; it. it's horrible. Ugh. And the tax collector standing far off wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven, but beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And to put it another way, it's really simple. If there's been deception, if we're deceived individually and we're walking in ways that aren't God's ways, if we're deceived as a married couple or as a family or as a business or as a church or a denomination or a, or a democracy or a country or, a, or a anything, the answer is always the same. Humble ourselves. Don't think more highly of ourselves than we should. Turn to God and in humility we pray because the Scripture says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful, and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us all of all unrighteousness. And so just to sum that up, it didn't matter that they built the temple according to the word of the Lord. And it might have been, as I've heard said, one of the most glorious constructions in history. Because that in itself is nothing. And persist daily in the ways of God. So pause and reflect on the things that you've built in your life for a moment. We're going to head to communion in just a bit, but just to give you an opportunity just to pause and reflect. Think of the things you've built. Maybe physical structures. Maybe businesses. Maybe the part you've played in building something else. A congregation, a denomination. Maybe you're involved in the political process in some way. Believe God's calling us to say, don't dwell in the past, don't dwell in what I did then, and then live as if I don't mean what I say. But today, if you hear my voice, humble yourself, confess your sin, for I'm faithful and just to forgive you of all sin and to cleanse you of all. Righteousness, And the amazing thing is that he gives us a meal to remind us of that. And so as you take the communion cups and hold on to them for a moment, I'm just going to read the passage from 1 Corinthians. The night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus Christ took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same matter, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Grace Marietta, we've got immense work ahead. We need to walk in the ways of the Lord every day. We're thankful for the good things God's given us. I'm thankful for the foundation of of the Grace Fellowship and those who've walked faithfully as part of that and the the foundations that are well laid. But we can't rest on those things. thankful for this building that was given to us, but we can't rest on the fact that we have a building. And America, the constitutions, the constitutions, the government structures, the laws, all the things that make this country the good things it is. You can't rest on that either. you got to trust in the God who today, yesterday, and tomorrow is the same. And calls us and says, love me, serve me. Let's eat and drink, my brothers and sisters, remembering the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior.